0: Amen. Why don't you pray with me one more time as we get started here. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for this glorious day. Thank you for the riches that we have already heard, we've already talked about, we've already sung, we've already praised. And help us now, Lord, as we hear the Word of God preached, Lord, that you would assist us, Lord, to not only speak your Word, but listen to your Word, hear your Word, to truly uh, internalize your Word to meditate on your word, and to obey your word. Father, we know and we recognize that in our own self, our own flesh, Lord, we cannot fulfill your commands. And so we're grateful today for the Lord Jesus. We thank you for his perfect life, his perfect death, his perfect obedience, Lord. And thank you that on the basis of all that he is, your goodness and your grace can be given to us. Help us now to exalt in our great God and King. Help us to see this world from the perspective of your throne. Help us to understand something of your sovereignty over this dark world. And help us, Lord, even in the practical things of our lives, to understand that because you are a God who is enthroned on high, That You are a God of unmitigated sovereignty and power. Oh God, help us to understand that You are for us. And if You are for us, who can be against us? We thank You. We ask for Your assistance now. That Your Spirit would be pleased to move among us. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. When we move along now in our exposition of Psalm chapter 2 or psalm 2 and we last week we looked at the theme of the hatred of Christ which is not the hatred that Christ has but the hatred that the world has for Christ we saw that so readily in the opening verses of this of this psalm when the nations who are in an uproar or who rage devise a vain thing and the kings and the rulers Take counsel against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. So that what's going on in this psalm is that the psalmist is understanding that the universal opposition of the world is ultimately leveled not at God's people, but directly against God himself and really against God's son, his son king. Jesus Christ, who is the king that God installs upon his throne by his own divine initiative and his own divine appointment. And so now, as we move away from looking at the the hatred of the world for Christ, now we look at the confidence of Christ, which is captured there in these verses that we just read. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them, and he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. This is just a remarkable, remarkable section of this psalm. Really comforting to me. And hopefully i make that clear, make it plain as we move on in the exposition. But I want to see that the confidence of Christ here is understood along three lines or in three ways. And all of them are presented here in these verses. Number one, we're going to see the sovereignty of God. Number two, very clearly, the wrath of God. And last of all, the kingdom of God. That's the way the passage progresses. And number one, therefore, is... The confidence of Christ being seen or illustrated in the infinite sovereignty of God. Now, usually when we think about the sovereignty of God, we are mainly thinking about soteriology. We're thinking about the doctrine of salvation, that um, that God is sovereign over the dis- the dispensing of his grace and his mercy. We know what a uh, passage like Romans 9 verse 18 says, he has mercy on who he has mercy, he has mercy. You know, grace, upon those he has, he hardens who he he hardens. We, We understand that. But at the same time, we know that the sovereign God of salvation is also the sovereign God of creation. That because God is enthroned, he is in a position of dominion, of power, of authority. And I think sometimes that we lose sight of that. I think it was important for Israel to regain their sight of that, and therefore the King here, David, is illustrating them, illustrating this for them to remember that as the nations gathered around the, 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 the children of Israel, as they gathered around the king and around the kingdom and around the people of the kingdom, as the nations raged and kingdom after kingdom and adversary after adversary, nation after nation, all the nations that they ever battled. David was zealous to illustrate the glory of the great king. He understood that by sitting on the throne, that is David sitting on the throne, it was a symbol of the absolute and total dominion of God and of his king. It's just really remarkable. Now, before we get to all of that, notice the response. Um, As the nations rage, the only possible response, the only adequate response is laughter and mockery. (laughs) Isn't that amazing? Uh, God unapologetically says he laughs from heaven and he even scoffs at them. Wow. This language here is telling us that as far as God is concerned, for humanity to imagine autonomy, For humanity to even flirt with the idea that they can shirk their responsibility or their accountability to Almighty God, the one to whom they will have to give an answer to, is an absolute joke. That they think that they can collectively come against God and His kingdom. God scoffs at them because of His position. He is in heaven. And from heaven, he is uniquely positioned to be the king that lords over the earth. And obviously, we understand that to mean the universe. Uh, It's not just this... I don't know, have you looked at the... the the ratio or the the, the, the comparison when they do a comparison of the earth and really our little speck of dust and our standing in this universe and how many hundreds if not thousands of earths can fit inside of the sun and how many probably thousands or millions of suns can fit inside of a bigger sun and you get perspective really quickly here of God's dominion And then he spans the whole universe with his hand as it were. And yet, the heaven of heavens, the Bible says, cannot contain him. In heaven, God is absolutely supreme, absolutely sovereign, 100% in control. Matter of fact, in Psalm 115, comfort yourself with this verse. Psalm 115, it says, Not to us, O Lord, not to us. How could it be to us Uh, now that we've established that we're floating around in a speck of dust, less than a speck, in a universe so vast that really it boggles the human mind and we, uh, we, we grapple with trying to understand the infinity of the universe and then to understand that that is even nothing in God's eyes. It says, not to us, but to your name be glory because of your loving kindness, because of your truth. Why should the nation say, where now is their God? Our God is in heaven and he does whatever he pleases. Just amazing to me that the, the subject of God's sovereignty is a debate today anywhere. How can we possibly debate the sovereignty of God when the psalmist here tells us in, in plain Sunday school level language, God's in heaven. He does whatever He wants. You want to challenge that? Where do you begin? You can't compete. You can't contend. You cannot compete with the Almighty. You can't enter into a debate with Him. You saw what happened to Job. God questioned him. Job was undone. And yet the rulers and the kings of this earth think that they are going to contend with Almighty God and really what it is, it is a complete and total pipe dream. It will never happen. Therefore, God laughs. Therefore, God, when He laughs, what He's saying is that His wrath and His fury is not a joke. Isn't it amazing that In the Bible, one of the most comforting sounds you will ever hear is the laughter of God. You know why? Because it tells you that your God is in absolute perfect control. Turn on the television. Surf the internet. Well, be careful. Look at what you see. Observe the headlines. It doesn't take a genius to understand that we're in a world that's falling apart. It's tearing itself apart. We we understand this from a cosmic or a, a global level rather. We understand this from a geopolitical level even. We understand this because we, we are we are in a world of serious polar powers on Earth with nuclear weapons. Hello, wake up. That have the ability to ruin your day. And as I've often pointed out, there are roughly oh I can't remember how many thousands of nuclear weapons sitting quietly in silos all across this green earth? And what do you think? They're going to sit in there for all eternity to be polished? Now, This is a world that's bent on self-destruction. This is a world that has prepared itself for annihilation. And none of those people who see this and don't have the Lord God as their God can comfort themselves with the comfort that you and I have. That God sits in the heavens, that he does whatever he pleases, that he is sovereign, that the earth is a footstool for his feet. We'll get into more of that. It's amazing to see, but God's laughter is a laughter that is full of irony. God, for God to laugh at you is for God to judge you. Therefore, when God is laughing at them, he is priming the pump. He is fattening for the slaughter, if you would. He is getting them ready for judgment. Psalm 59, if you want to turn over there really quick. Psalm 59, verse 5 says, O Lord God of hosts, the God of Israel, awake and punish all the nations. Do not be gracious to any who are treacherous in iniquity. They return at evening. They howl like a dog and go around the city. Behold, they belch forth in their mouth. Swords are in their lips. For they say, who hears? But you, O Lord, laugh at them and you scoff at the nations the nations are in derision the nations are the nations are still confused you know after god confused all the nations at the tower of babel they never recovered from that you know that i mean think about it As John MacArthur has pointed out, the UN sits around a big old circle talking to one another, headpieces, trying to understand each other, interpreting each other's language the best they can. And once they come to an understanding of what the other ones say, they completely disagree. There's never any unity, never will be any unity. So it's a complete, that's why it says in verse 1, they devise a vain thing. It's vain on every level. It's vain because the rulers have no authority over God. It's vain because they themselves have no unity with each other. Ephesians says that they are hostile. They are hating and hating one another. This world is in total hatred of itself. It's total self-destruction. But their anger, their rage is ultimately pointed at the one who will hold them accountable God's uh, sovereignty here is why the king can be so confident. And you'll see this in the life of Christ throughout. Total confidence, total resignation under the sovereignty of God. He's standing before those who have the power and the authority to crucify them. And Jesus says to them, You would have no authority unless it would be given to you. That's Jesus perfectly in tune with, with the sovereignty of God. It's not just his sovereignty that gave Christ confidence, it's also the infinite wrath of God. And it's not just Christ who was confident, but the believers. Um, going back to the original context of Psalm 2, you understand that this was a coronation psalm. This was a psalm that would be read over the king when they would be installing him into the kingdom to reign as king. And they would read the psalm before the people and all of Israel would take comfort in the fact that God, despite all of the tumultuous nations that surrounded them, God will put His King in place. Because God is sovereign and because God is a God of wrath and because God will speak to them in His anger and terrify them in His fury. um. Think about that. The anger of God here begins not with fire and brimstone. It begins with His Word. You see that? He will speak to them in His anger and terrify them in His fury. So for God to speak is a terrifying thing. We know from Scripture that to fall into the hands of the living God is a terrifying thing. It's an awesome thing. Matter of fact, just focus on the speech of God. You know from the book of Hebrews that we just finished. You know in Hebrews chapter 12 that they're echoing back to a series of scriptures. For example, Exodus chapter 20 verse 19. Where the, where the voice of God is an epiphany that is so terrifying that man begs that God would shut his mouth. Exodus 20 verse 19, then the people said to Moses, speak to us yourself, we will listen. Now there's coming a day when the world will beg for preachers to to speak to them. Because God speaking to them will be too much to bear. They said, do not let God speak to us or we will die. See, it was a symbol of final judgment, even as Hebrews chapter 12 is going towards the eschaton. It is a symbol of ultimate condemnation. It is a symbol that as you approach the holy mountain of God, there was God on Zion, on his throne, speaking and issuing forth his righteous laws, which no one can keep. And therefore, they understood if God keeps demanding of us righteousness, we will die. And that's why the epiphany there on, on Sinai was accompanied with thick cloud and fire and gloom and lightning and thunder and earthquake. You know what an earthquake is like, don't you? Well, maybe not here in Texas. Being from Southern California, I've been thrown out of my bed by an earthquake. I'll tell you what, when the earth begins to shake under your feet, you lose faith in everything. Get out of self preservation. You will throw your toddler out of your arms to go get under a couch somewhere. I've seen it. they have got hilarious videos of people doing just that. But an earthquake, epiphanic manifestation of the wrath of God, showing that when God speaks, man is undone. And that's what the rulers, that's what the nations are headed towards, because they fail to understand who they're contending with. Turn with me in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 40 just to get another perspective as we think about the sovereign God speaking in his wrath, speaking in his anger based on his absolute authority as Lord of the universe. Isaiah reminds us of the proper perspective. We look at the threats online. We look at the threats in the media, on the news. What's going on we North Korea or Iran? What's going on in China? And now, you know, India and China are going at it, and they're talking about threatening each other with war. And What's going to happen in this crazy world? Isaiah 40, verse 15 says, Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket. They're regarded as a speck of dust on the scales. In other words, as far as God's concerned, they don't even register. Behold, he lifts up the islands like fine dust. Even Lebanon is not enough to burn, or the beasts enough for burnt offering. There's nothing in this earth that impresses God. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are regarded by him as less than nothing and meaningless. How's that for your self-esteem? But that's exactly what the situation actually is. In chapter 41 of Isaiah, similar passage, look there. He drives the nations like dust. Look at Isaiah 41, beginning in verse 2. Who has aroused one of these from the east and calls on righteousness to his feet? It says, he delivers up nations before him and he subdues kings. He makes them like dust with his sword and the wind-driven chaff with his bow. He pursues them, passing on in safety. In other words, it is effortless for God to judge the nations. By a way he had not traversed with his feet, who has performed and accomplished it calling forth generation from the beginning, I, the Lord, the first, and with the last, I am He. See, when He says, I am first, and He is last, He is is Alpha, He is Omega, He is beginning, and He is end. What is He saying? God is saying He has absolute dominion over all things, including time and history. Life itself is under His absolute, unmitigated control. If you love Him, then this is great news for you. If you worship the King, if you love the King, if you look to the King, if you bow to the King, if you praise the King, if you glory in the King, then this is great news for you. But, if you rebel against the King, if you say, we will not have this man rule over us, then this is terrifying news for you. A lot of people make the common mistake that what Isaiah is talking about here, what Psalms is talking about here, what Exodus is talking about here, what all these passages are talking about here is really irrelevant because, you know, that's Old Testament. We talked a little bit about this in Sunday school about Marcion and his view of the God of wrath, the Old Testament, that he could just discard because it was useless now that grace and love have come. Turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Uh, Do this in evangelism as well as when you're talking to somebody and telling you that the God of the Old Testament is a mean God. You know, he is a uh, X, Y, and Z. I won't utter the blasphemies, but you know what I mean. When they decry God and when they insist that the God of the Old Testament is a mean, evil God. And the God of the New Testament is just a God of love, and that's all we need to be talking about. Because, after all, that's what Jesus' message was. Remind them of a New Testament verse. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, beginning in verse 6. You know this verse. For after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you. Now, the principle here is that the Thessalonians... like. Paul goes on to say, they were suffering from their own countrymen, the Gentiles, even as the, even as the apostles had suffered from their countrymen, the Jews, persecution. They're being persecuted. He says in verse 7, to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well, when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. You want to talk about an epiphany. You want to talk about a, you want to talk about a manifestation of the glory of God. Wait till the end comes. Dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. that's why raising your children in the Lord is a crisis. It's a crisis. It's not just a casual veggie tales, sort of you know, Disneyland kind of... it is serious it is a crisis hour for them they're in a they're in a spiritual dilemma of their lives and therefore you should end every night with your children next to them kneel down next to them beseeching the lord and pleading for their soul it says these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. Try reading that verse on Fox News. The nations detest the judgment of God because they detest God. I, I can't put it in any more uh, I can't put it in a sterile way that's going to satisfy people because that's what the Word says. Finally, it's not just the sovereignty of God, the wrath of God, but Jesus' confidence is also based on the infinite kingdom of God. This is a big one. He says, uh, as we look at back at Psalm 2, just turn back there with me, he says, sort of resuming the thought of verse three: "Let us tear their fetters apart. Let us cast their cords from us." And then look at verse six: "But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain." So this is the divine response to the protest of the nations that say, "We don't want his accountability. We don't want to submit to his rule, to his lordship, to his sovereignty, to his dominion, to his word, to his standards, to his holiness, to his righteousness. We want autonomy. We want." want to do our own thing. What is the divine response coming back? Say whatever you want and look at the qualification. But as for me, <laughs> as if God says, "Here's my opinion on the matter if you want my two cents." I am going to install my king upon Zion. Oh, that that is so loaded. And then the synonymous parallel, my holy mountain, glorious, glorious. Well, we understand what Zion is. We understand that in the Bible, Zion has many different meanings, but ultimately refers to God's kingdom reign, his rule. Uh, We'll get to that in a second. But the way that I see it is that as the Lord is pointing to the enthronement of the king on Zion, three things are displayed about God's infinite kingdom. You ready? Number one, God's sovereignty is displayed in His kingdom. We've already seen this and we've already learned, but God is saying He is going to install His king. And now just a sneak peek, fast forward a little bit to verse 7. It is there by sovereign decree. Look at verse 7. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today, I have begotten you. Now, we'll get into the meaning of all of that, Lord willing, next week. But simply to say here that this is God saying that regardless of what the nations do, regardless of the protest of all of the wicked of the world, God's king will sit on his glorious throne and there is not a thing that you can do about it. You will either bow or you will rebel. And if you bow, it will be to your eternal joy. If you rebel, it will be to your eternal destruction. Not just the sovereignty is displayed here, but... And I've got about 15 verses. I can't go through them. But not just his sovereignty, but also the king. The king! I told uh, the ladies at the ladies' study this past Wednesday, I said... uh, You know, one of the hardest concepts in the Bible is the theology of the kingdom. And one of the easiest ways to understand the theology of the kingdom is look at the king. That's it. That's the hermeneutical key that unlocks everything you ever want to know about the kingdom. You want to know something about the kingdom? Look at the king. Where is the kingdom? Where is the king? What is the kingdom like? What is the king like? Is the king here? Is the kingdom here? I don't know. Is the king here? Yes, of course he's here. Well, is he physically here? No, and neither is the kingdom. Is He spiritually here? Yes, and so is the kingdom. Is the kingdom coming? I don't know. Is the king coming? Just look at the king, and the kingdom will emerge for what it is. There is no kingdom without the king. And here we're told that His king, Jesus, will be installed. And He will... Be given an unshakable kingdom by decree. It's just fascinating, fascinating, fascinating. I want to give us hope. I want to whet your appetite to be heavenly minded. Because this is where it's all going. You see the the reference there to Zion. And I've already pictured this. But Zion is such a fascinating thing. Open a Bible encyclopedia and turn to Zion. And just look at all the different ways that Zion is used in the Bible. It's used in so many different facets. In so many different ways. Zion is typological in the Bible of so many different things. For example second Samuel chapter 5 verse 7 Samuel uh, excuse me Zion represents Jerusalem Psalm 132 verse 13 Zion represents the epicenter of God's glory in the temple in Psalm 9 verse 11 Zion is the glory realm of heaven where God resides and that's also what's being told to us in Hebrews chapter 12 verse 11 to make it simple it's almost like Zion is heaven. Look with me, turning your Bibles now to this one. Psalm 48, verses 1 through 3. Because of all the different ways that Zion is used, whether it's talking about salvation, whether it's talking about heaven, whether it's talking about Jerusalem, whether it's talking about the heavenly Jerusalem, in all of these different aspects and different facets of the way that Zion is used, Psalm 48, verse 1, really encompasses different uses of it and combines them. Great is the Lord. Greatly to be praised in the city of our God, His holy mountain. So now, city of God, holy mountain, Zion, synonymous. Beautiful in elevation. The joy of the whole earth is Mount Zion in the far north. The city of the great King. God in her palaces has made Himself known as a stronghold. See, as a stronghold means He is our refuge. What does it say at the end of Psalm 2? Pay homage to the Son, that He not become angry and you perish in the way, for His wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in Him. Why? Because He is our stronghold. And he is our stronghold. It is the city of the great king because without him, the city is really nothing. Everything that is beautiful about God is in Zion. I love this. Everything that is resplendent or luminous about God, the luminosity of his glory. I, I looked for language for this, I'm groping for adequate descriptions of the glory of God. Something a little bit more, if you would, extravagant than just God is, you know, good, which He is. But I, I'm trying to show the, the effulgence, the, 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 the luminosity of God. You get what I'm saying? We're talking about how, how resplendent He is, the outpouring or the outstreaming of His beauty flowing from Zion. It says in Psalm 50, verse 2, out of Zion, the perfection of beauty. Look at that. The perfection of beauty. God has shone forth. Or maybe another translation. God is shining forth. It is God's chosen resting place. Psalm 132, verse 13, For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for His his habitation. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. I have desired it. Hmm. It is where God has chosen to dwell, not only for His own resting place, but with His people. He says in Judah, Mount Zion He loved. Ultimately, Zion is not just indicative of a place, but it's also indicative of a state of existence. It doesn't just represent heaven. It also represents eternal life in God's glory, temp- uh, God's glory kingdom. That's what we're looking at, the kingdom of God. That is what Psalm 2 is really pointing us to. The king installed in Zion is ultimately directing us towards the end of the age. The Eschaton Age, where Jesus Christ will reign in his unshakable kingdom forever. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 11. I think Revelation chapter 11 really encompasses it all, it really um, captures everything. It's just too much. But we will read it nonetheless. Revelation chapter 11, beginning in verse 15. This is so amazing, this picture that we're given here. The seven angels sounded, and there was a loud voice in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. And 24 elders who sit on the throne before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give thanks, O Lord God, The Almighty, who are and who were, because you were taken, you have taken your great power and you have begun to reign, and the nations were enraged. Psalm 2, there it is. And your wrath came, Psalm 2. And the time came for the dead to be judged, and the time to reward your bondservants, the prophets and the saints. That's us. And those who fear your name, the small and the great, And to destroy those who destroy the earth. I don't necessarily know that that's talking about pollution. Who is it that destroys the earth? I would say it's the devil, the Antichrist, the false prophet, and all who are identified with them. It's a parallel passage to another passage, namely Revelation chapter 19, where the, the Antichrist, and the devil, de, or, or the Antichrist and the false prophet are destroyed, which is another parallel to Revelation chapter 20 at the end of verse 10, there, where the devil, the Antichrist, and the false prophet are all thrown into the lake of fire. They're the ones. They're the ones who came to destroy the earth because that's what they do. That's what Antichrist is. That's what Satan does. He destroys the world. Psalm 2 is so practical for our lives. And how do we see the confidence of Christ in the life of Christ? Well, again, we've already pointed to it, but we understand that his whole life was resigned under the sovereignty of God. Do you look at your life that way? But do you understand it in the way that Jesus did? That it's not just that God is sovereign. It's that God is sovereign and in every meticulous detail, God is working out his purposes, and this is the greatest part of it all for your good. You know what's remarkable is when they kept when they came, when they came to arrest Jesus, Jesus saw that. And remember what he said? He said, who have you come? I'm thinking of John chapter 18, where they came and they're seeking the Nazarene. It says, who are you seeking? Nazarene. Jesus says, okay, let these other people go. See, There's no throwaway details in the life of Jesus. Everything in the life of Jesus, everything has some sort of deep significance. Because Jesus said, after he made that request, let these people go. He says, this is to fulfill the word which he spoke of those whom you have given me. I have lost none. Wow, it's amazing. Even in that little two-second interaction with the, with the soldier, Jesus made a statement. This is all part of God's sovereign plan. What does that tell me? That tells me that all the little details in my life, guess what? That's all part of God's sovereign plan too. And they play a great role in everything God is doing in my life. It just makes life meaningful. We're surrounded by people, brothers and sisters, we're surrounded by people, and we live in a culture of life being absolutely meaningless. Meaningless. You can see it in their insatiable desire for pleasure, carnal pleasure. Because life really has no meaning, all you do is live like a dog. All you do is live like a brute beast. And you try to fill yourself with as much food and sex and pleasure and vileness and evil and and, and hedonism as you possibly can. That is a life that is destitute of meaning and purpose and dignity and worth. And yet, we know that in our lives, everything down to the most meticulous detail has meaning and is for the glory of God. Of God, just like it was in the life of the king. Let's pray. Let's pray. Father, thank you again so much for this short time where we can come visit together, worship together, assemble as your people, as the saints, and that we can hear your word, that we can be reminded of the actual way that things are. Because we're very easily frightened. We're very easily intimidated. We're very easily anxious over the way that things are becoming. Where the world is going. Where the culture is going. Where things are headed. And if we did not have your promises, we, we could be tempted to forget who is on the throne. Oh God, remind us of that daily. Daily.